and allow yourself to listen, not so much that you have to remember anything that's said tonight, um, no tests or quiz at the end or anything like that. Um, listen in a contemplative way. Uh, you sit first in meditation, quiet the mind, open the heart. And then if you hear what rings true to your deepest wisdom, let that be a reminder, a resonance for what you already know. So, good Labor Day to you. Um, I guess some kind of greeting like that. Sometimes, um, perhaps in the Buddhist language, it would be called Right Livelihood Day. <laughs> and it's, it's in part a way of honoring so many ancestors and generations of hands and hearts and effort and, and curiosity and creativity and so forth that we receive the blessings of, from which we receive the blessings. Um, and I think also in Right Livelihood or Labor Day, it's an invitation not only to honor work and the work of all of us and also perhaps the the suffering when we don't have work, because there are also all these people out of work right now. Um, not just people who are homeless, but people who are, you know, who have all kinds of creative capacities, jobless. Um, and one of the great gifts of being a human being is to be able to offer yourself to the world. To not be able to offer yourself is a is a is a tragedy. Um, but right livelihood goes from being able to offer yourself, being able to work to also being able to work in a way that you can connect your heart or your spirit to that work. Um, whatever it is, even if it's very simple. So Thomas Merton, the Christian contemplative mystic, um, who is also a, a writer, said, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. And if you write for men and women, you may make some money and give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. But if you write for your own self-promotion, you can read what you yourself have written, and after ten minutes you'll be so disgusted you wish you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so pointing to some other way of doing work um, that Martin Luther, uh, with the results of their patients getting better and getting healed and leaving the hospital, um, and the end of the study basically was that the people who paid their tolls, their patients got better twice as often as the pay people who didn't pay their tolls. I don't know, you can look it up and see. <laughs> but there is something about finding the principle of virtue or integrity or justice, even in a society that in some ways has lost its sense. The perfume of jasmine, rose bay, sandalwood travels with the wind, says the Buddha. But the scent of the virtuous heart rises even to the heavens. And real virtue or integrity is called the adornment of kings and queens. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, this is your crown, your adornment. And it's true of elders, it doesn't matter whether they're African or, you know, Mayan or or Indian, or, or, or Muslim, or it doesn't matter. When, when you have somebody that's really respected, in part it's because of their integrity. 
who harm none but serve that which is good or, or just. Now in the, in the children's stories about these qualities and the Buddhist teachings are filled with a whole set of story, animal stories for children that illustrate in the education of those cultures. Um, there's a story about a king who was known to be really just a long, long time ago when you were much younger than you are now. And when the king is just, the gods decide to test him or her when the queen is just. That somehow this archetypally has to happen. And you know it. If there's integrity, then you'll also be tested. So in this case, the king decreed that um, no creature should be deliberately harmed in his kingdom. And then, um, all of a sudden, you know, some time later after this decree, the, the window was open in the throne room, and a, and a dove flew into the room and landed on the, on the, king, the, the king's throne, and by the magic of storytelling, was able to speak to the king, and said, help me, help me, I'm being chased by a hawk, and you said that, you know, creatures were to be safeguarded, please safeguard me. And the king said, I certainly will. And then the hawk flies in and lands on the other part of the throne and looks the king right in the eye, as a hawk will do, and says, that's my dove. And the king said, ah, oh, no, that's my dove. I've, I'm the ruler of this kingdom, and I've agreed to safeguard this dove and to save her life. And then the hawk looks and says, yes, you will save her life at the cost of mine, for I am not a vegetarian by birth. <laughs> and unless I have fresh meat, <clears throat> I will die. What will you do? King took a breath, did a little bit of meditation, right, looking at the two birds, and called for a sword to be brought, pulled out the sword, and said, since I cannot give you this bird, I've pledged my word, and at the same time I cannot deny you your, <clears throat> your life, I will give you of my own flesh, and pulled out the sword and was just starting to cut his own flesh to be way in a scale equal to the bird. <clears throat> when the gods who were testing him, you know how these old stories go, the birds disappeared into a great cloud of golden light and the great god, one of the great gods, Brahma God or whoever came, and said, you are indeed a just king, and bowed down and gave blessings that the kingdom would, would uh, prosper for eons ahead and so forth for you are willing to give of your own life to save the lives of others. This kind of story that was told to children. Now you hear a story like this, and you go, wait a second. You know, paying my taxes, all right, maybe, you know. Speed limit, close, anyway. But this is, this is really going a little far. Um, how could we possibly measure up to this kind of virtue? But what the story does is it points to the enormous power of virtue. It used to be that a man or a woman took an oath and stood by that, stood by their character. Their word was good. And there's, a, there's something so beautiful about standing on your word, about meaning what you really care about as you speak it and as you live it. I have an acquaintance, a friend, from some years ago, named Jane Middleton Maas. Um, and uh, she is a uh, um, significant part Native American, and a psychologist, does all kinds of interesting and creative healing work. And she was working with the Ojibwe and uh, Ashinaabe people 
um, in southern Canada. Um, she was working with a series of tribes, or Indian groups, whose children had been taken away um, by force to uh, schools from their parents and forbidden to speak their language. You can imagine your children were taken away. And you know, it was not until 1976 under Jimmy Carter in the U.S. that Native American religious practices were, were legal and allowed in the country. So these people's children were taken away in the U.S. and in Canada, sent to these, in many cases, really um, terrible schools, abusive places in, in many cases, not allowed to speak their language, um, forbidden to do their rituals, um, and so it was really the destruction of the community, which was partly the purpose of it in some way from, um, for, for generations now. And so it was, there was a healing that was called for, and she met with a number of the elders there, and they did a three-day healing. Um, and the culmination of the healing was for all the different parts of the community to come together, the grandparents in the outer circle, the parents in the middle circle, and then the children in the center. And each one repeated some of the stories that they'd been telling to one another in the course of this long ritual. The grandparents talked about what it was like to have their children taken from them, if you can even imagine that, and what it did to them, and why they started drinking, and why they couldn't work. The parents, who were, you know, in their 30s and 40s, talked about what it was like to be ripped from their families and taken away and not allowed to speak their language for, you know, 10 or 15 years, and all the trauma that they had suffered. And the youngest generation, the children, who were the teenagers, especially in that group, 8, 10, 15, 18 years old, got to hear and understand what had happened to their people so they could know why they were the way they were. And when the end of this ritual took place in the tribe there, one of the uh, traditions is a giveaway, is that gifts will be offered. And after everybody had wept, everybody had held the suffering of this group, of their, of their family and their people, um, with their tears and with their hearts. Then it was time. And the elders in the circle said, to complete this, we have gifts that we've never been allowed to give you and that we will do now. And one stood up and said, I will no longer sell the land of our people. There's been somebody who's been selling some of the Indian land. And another old woman stood up and said, I haven't made a basket since my children were taken from me. I will now teach you all, the young ones, how to make our baskets. And another man stood up and said, What I promise you on oath is you will never see me drink again. And a woman stood up and said, My door now will always be open to your generation. Or I will no longer sell our artifacts. And each one of them took an oath to the youngest generation that they would stand on so that those who were at the center of the circle, the new generation, could have a place to heal and to stand. So there's some 
extraordinary power to the virtue that comes from our deepest integrity and truth. Um, and my teacher, Ajahn Chah, loved to talk about virtue and spiritual life, the joy of integrity, the peace that comes from an upright heart, the, the sanity in the world when people act with integrity. All spiritual life rests on it. Basically, it's really hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work very well. You know? Or without it, it's like getting in the rowboat and trying to get to the further shore while the boat's still tied to the dock without virtue. There's no way to actually move. There's no, no genuine spiritual life. You could have you know, interesting states and insights and so forth. They're all worthless and deluded if they're not connected with how we act in the world as a foundation. And it's said that there are three levels to this kind of integrity, to live a sacred life. Um, the first level is limiting harm. It's also called the entry into the human realm. If you, if you don't have this level, then in some ways you're in a human body, but you're not really quite fully human yet. And in this realm, we enter the human realm um, by undertaking to refrain from the actions that harm other beings. Um, one of the teachers who comes here, Ruth Dennison, who's a friend of mine, was leading a retreat, and she was out in the parking lot, um, and she saw the sheriff's car um, sitting there, because sometimes the sheriff had liked to come and read in our parking lot. I think, I don't know either. It was an, I mean, I could say it's nice vibes, but maybe it's just no one bothers him. <laughs> but she went up, and she knocked on the window, and he rolled down, and she said, she said, you know, we're helping you. Rather, that's the way, she's this wonderful, old, she was born in, in Germany, maybe in, you know, the 1920s, she's in her 80s, and said, we are, we are, we are helping you here, you know, we're teaching everybody not to break the laws. You know? She was very excited, and she wanted the sheriff to, to understand. But these traditional, this non-harming or compassion, is expressed in five trainings. The first is the training of refraining from killing or harming beings. Um, and that includes, to the best you can, even the little ones, like this poem. A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. <laughs> some sense. And in the... Oh, I saw a cartoon in the New Yorker years ago. It showed two deer on a hillside and a couple of hunters hunting season. The deer were talking to one another. One said to the other, why don't they feed their own goddamn herds? <laughs> There's too many of something around here, and I don't think it's deer. <laughs> but it means, basically, to take inwardly the resolve to not bring harm to creatures, large or small, to other, to other beings. And it's, it safeguards them, and it safeguards yourself. The second traditional training is on no account to steal, to take what belongs to another. And when we were, uh, when I lived in the monastery, when we were doing our recitations as monks, one of the most important trainings, or the most critical ones, was that you wouldn't take anything that belonged to anybody else. And if you stole or took something that was worth more than a nickel, if I recall, 
you were out. That was it. You could never be a monk again. It was so important that we respect one another in order to make a place of safety. Because otherwise you need, you know, bars and broken glass and guards and, you know, all the whole security thing. We spend $80 billion a year, $100 billion a year in the U.S. on those kind of security things. To have a, a life with other human beings that has integrity is a gift of safety. To not steal. Um, to not uh, speak falsely. To not slander or say the wrong say things that are, that are destructive um, to the well-being of others. Um, and even it says not to gossip in, in ways that are unhelpful. Um, that is to not talk about people when they're not there in ways that can cause destruction in, in your community. I remember my colleague Joseph Goldstein said, all right, I'm going to try this practice. I'm just not going to talk about somebody I know when they're not there. And he said he was shocked. He said about half of his speech was eliminated. <laughs> kind of, just to become mindful of that. Um, but it's, you know, it's to refrain from speaking falsely. John invited his mother over to dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd been suspicious of a relationship between them for a long time. This only made her more curious. And watching them over the course of the evening, she wondered if there was more between John and the roommate that met the eye. Reading his mother's thoughts, John said, I know what you're thinking, but I assure you Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, You know, ever since your mom came to dinner, I've been unable to find the beautiful silver soup ladle. You don't think she did anything with it, do you? I don't know. I'll, I suppose not, but I'll send her an email. Dear Mom, I'm not saying you had anything to do with it, but the fact remains that since you were here, this, the soup ladle's missing. Do you know anything about it? Later, she received an email from her mother which said, Dear John, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie, and I'm not saying that you don't, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup later. <laughs> this is entitled, Don't Lie to Your Mother. You know, you're going to find out. Not to speak falsely, not to harm through the misuse of sexuality, which means not to cause the kind of pain that we have often seen in the misuse of sexuality. How many people in this room have made idiots of yourselves in relation to sexuality? Don't bother. You don't even need to have you raise your hands. It's a, it's a gift and it's a very powerful, wonderful force, but also it's one that can cause a lot of suffering. So it's to not cause harm through the misuse of sexuality, nor through the misuse of intoxicants, alcohol and drugs. 10 million drug addicts, 20 million alcoholics, the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of home fires, the majority of child abuse. Um, this is just basic humanity, to not cause harm to their practices of compassion. 
And they're so simple, as Spencer, Spencer Tracy put it, just know your lines and don't bump into the furniture. That was sort of his description of acting, right? This is how to act as a human being. And yet, I ask you as you reflect, try to imagine the power if one of these practices was undertaken globally. Even half of one. Suppose we, we just stopped killing people. We, we, we you know, forget the poor deer. And so forth. It would be a different planet. Or suppose, my heavens, that people told the truth. I mean, well, that would be the end of advertising politics, um, a good part of modern communication. Um, imagine that. Or not stealing, not taking what doesn't belong. They have an enormous power to transform culture, individual culture and the, the world as we understand them. The earth is too small a star, and we too brief visitors upon it for anything to matter more than the truth. There's a gift that we have in knowing what integrity is and acting that way. So the first level is to limit harm, not to cause harm out of our compassion. And then the mind quiets, the heart opens, we live in harmony. The second level of virtue is actually cultivating the expression of compassion further. Um, not just refraining, but seeing that we're in the same boat, the inescapable network of mutuality, the single garment of destiny. And this is an inner empowerment to care for your brothers and your sisters and to, for all creatures. Stress and loneliness have as much to do with healing as the latest drugs and expensive procedures, you know, for this healthcare debate. <laughs> Human beings aren't intricate mechanisms whose fuel injection systems can be dispassionately adjusted by medical me mechanics. The need for contact, communication, and compassion has been programmed into the functioning of the cells of our immune system, the walls of our arteries, and our very will to live. The most profound feelings come from being connected to other human beings. People who are involved with others live longer. And so our connection with one another and with all creatures changes not killing to a reverence for life. And in the monastery, we were really careful to step over the ants and take care of every little creature. And it was a beautiful way to live. It was something that was so um, both heartening and ennobling to look after even the littlest creature. And I've sat with the Dalai Lama, you know, when some bug would land on his robe, and he would be really careful to, you know, take it off, and then he'd look and he'd say, you know, we have so much to learn. The ants are so incredibly, um, you know, courageous in what they do, and the spiders are so patient, and I learned so much from the, from my my brother insects, you know. <laughs> and you can just hear him laugh, and then you have this great big Dalai Lama laugh. And you could feel the affection and care in the reverence for life, small and large. Famous story of a Zen master. 
who went into the kitchen and the cook was chopping the vegetables and, you know, uh, some of the vegetables didn't look so good so he kind of tossed them into the bin where the, where the garbage would go and, uh, you know, and it was then poured out into the stream just as his end master came in and he said, no, 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 you can't throw them away like that. And running down the stream in his robe, getting wet and grabbing the parsnips or the carrots and saying, listen, these are part of our life. We have to be more respectful of these guys. Those are little tiny stories, but they really speak about developing respect for the earth respect for the ecosystem that we live in and for the entire environment. To not be piggy, basically. To take care with the way that we live, that you live, so that it also is respectful to the other forms of life. Because how you live affects all the other beings. It does. Scientists can see more quickly than our politicians that there's no technological fix, that no magic bullet, no amount of computers or internet or other scientific and biotechnology advances will save us from continuing population explosion, extinction of plant and animal species, continuing warfare and racism. We're going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals, than those that have been driving us in our global consumer economy. We're going to have to live in harmony on this earth. And so this is reverence for life. Not killing, and not stealing, not taking more than belongs to you. Taking care with what we share. Then there is not lying, which comes more to speaking that which is true. To be willing to see what's true and stand up for the truth. And it doesn't mean a kind of brutal honesty. In the Buddhist text it says, when one speaks truth, um, one should also speak in due season to their benefit in a way that's genuine and also not harming, you know, with a sense of love in the heart. In some way it's not just truth to power, but it's love to power. And yet, it's necessary to do it. And I think Gloria Steinem said, um, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> and it's willingness to, to not lie about the way things are. For evil not to succeed, all is necessary, is somebody somewhere to stand up and tell the truth. This from Faulkner. He writes, Some things you must always be unable to bear. Some things you must never stop refusing to bear. Injustice and outrage, dishonor, shame. No matter how young you are or how old you got, not for fame or cash, your picture in the paper, or money in the bank, just refuse to bear them. And it's, that's really, again, a call to your nobility to see what's true and stand up for it, and speak for it. I could feel it when I was traveling in Burma this winter, 
because um, there's so much oppression from the di military dictatorship leading the strip there. And we weren't allowed to speak. If we said anything, we would put our hosts and the schools and clinics and projects and people we came in contact with in, uh, in great danger. They could have been imprisoned or killed. So we had to, our discipline was to keep silent while we were there. And then various people who came on the trip have written all kinds of amazing things, both for educating people in the world and also because of the kind of corporate things that are happening where various oil companies and mining companies and so forth are dealing with the Burmese government to make money in ways that are, um, that are undermining the, um, the whole well-being of 50 million people. So sometimes you just have to not bear it and say, this is wrong. But you have to pick your time and your place so that it doesn't put yourself or others in the wrong kind of danger. And then sexuality, instead of not harming, it's to respect such sexuality and eros and intimacy and communion and the, the beauty and the, the mystery of it. And it's an amazing mystery. Um, poem from Eduardo Galeano, he writes, Science says the body is a machine. The church says the body is a sin. The marketplace says the body is good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. <laughs> and there's something so important about the life of the body, the, the enlivened connected life of the body on this earth and with one another. So it's not just refraining from causing harm, but it also allows us to celebrate our bodies and celebrate our connections with one another. And instead of the refraining from abusing intoxicants, the next step in cultivation is to do that which wakes us up, which nourishes your spirit, silence, walking in the mountains, by the ocean, great music, meditation. What are, what are the things that bring you awake? This from the Chinese sage Zhuang Su. He says, a drunken man falls out of a cart. Though he may suffer, he does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security, He's not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out of it. The ideas of life, death, fear, and the like cannot penetrate his breast, and so he does not suffer from contact with objective existence. If such security is to be got from wine, how much more is to be got from resting in the Tao? <laughs> so there's some way of really taking stock in our life and saying, what is it that nurtures wakefulness, that brings us alive in this mystery, that keeps our senses open, our mind clear, our heart open, to cultivate this for ourselves and in our community? And so this is the second level, the level that knows that life is complicated, but the intention is not only not to harm, but to care for all, like they're your sisters and brothers and aunties. And it is, you know, every traditional and indigenous culture 
it's um, Auntie Condoleezza, right? <laughs> Uncle Barack, and or you know, grandfather, or you know, Auntie Hillary, and I mean, everybody has a has a preface to their name that's your relative, and that's because it's true. Um, and so to somehow find the sensibility that says it's us that we care for one another. So those are the first two levels, to avoid harm and then to cultivate the sense of connection and reverence for life. And then the third is called Adi Sila, and it means the highest or most noble forms of virtue. And in this it is the discovery of virtue or integrity as inherent in our very being and in our heart. Again, Thomas Merton says, saints are holy not because of their own sanctity or purity, but because the gift of sainthood allows them to admire everyone else. Really a beautiful thing to say, that the gift of sainthood allows them to see the beauty in everyone else. Or Nelson Mandela, who says, it never hurts to think too highly of a person. They often act the better because of it. Mm -hmm. There's something about that vision of seeing the nobility of others and the potential that's there. And Adi Sila is this quality of the essence of our integrity or virtue when fear of death drops away, when self-interest and insecurity drop away in the face of something that's even more true. So I think of this um, man, Mr. Liu King, who was put in a Chinese dissident who served 11 years in Weinan Number 2 prison. And during this time, he was forced to sit on this little wooden bench, eight inches high, without moving for 10 hours a day. And if he moved or talked, he was beaten. And to get out of the prison, all he had to do was sign a statement without naming anyone, saying he had made mistakes in his thinking. And against all odds, for 11 years, Mr. Liu King refused to sign. On what basis did he rely? He saw the faces of the people he respected and loved in his village and community, and he said, I cannot say this. I will not do it. And it was his connectedness with their love and with knowing that he carried something for them that made him unable to do it. And it's funny, you know, because we see nobility of virtue in so many different places. One of the places that I've seen it surprisingly um, is I've worked a bit with the prison project that got spawned out of Sphere Rock, the Inside Prison Project, and I was on their board for a while and so forth. And Going into San Quentin, there are people there who've done all kinds of terrible things. There are also some amazingly um, wise men inside. You know, and maybe people even who say, I was 18 years old and I was messed up on drugs and I did this horrible thing, but that was 25 years ago. That's not who I am anymore. I'm just not that person. And a, a friend of mine brought, at one point, the San Quentin, um, brought, brought into San Quentin the um, Gyuto Tibetan Tantric Choir to sing. Mm. Now, I don't know if you guys, if you remember who they are, but they're those monks who sing the deep multivocal 
you know, one monk can sing a whole chord. And all this whole music comes out of one person's mouth, right? And they have this fantastic choir. And they were touring America, and this friend arranged for them to go into San Quentin to sing together or next to the San Quentin Gospel Choir. Oh, wow. We had the San Quentin Gospel Choir, the guys who were outside, who graduated, so to speak, come and sing here on Monday night some years past, and they were fantastic. But anyway, but she was worried. She brought them in. They, they were supposed to do this in front of a whole lot of people in the prison. And she began to get worried about a few things. She said, first of all, most of the guys in the Gospel Choir are very ardent um, Christians. In many cases, they're born again. They were in the you know depths of the hell of prison, because it is, it's insane. We have two and a half million or three million people in our prisons. Um, many of them because of these draconian laws. You know, for the littlest parole violation, you're back in for 10 years. It's just, it's really inhuman. But anyway, um, there are these guys, and they, they got um, born again, and Jesus came to them in some way, and they sing uh, gospel songs, and it's really saved them. And she was afraid that these Tibetan monks would look like heathens coming in, you know. And then worse, I mean, it's a bunch of little guys wearing skirts. <laughs> so she was kind of worried how this was going to come down. But she was also wise. So when the monks came in, before they sang, she introduced them. She said, I'd like to introduce you to the monks of the... Buto Tantra Choir, almost all of these men have spent long years in prison. Many of them were tortured in prison um, for their religious beliefs, for the truth that they wanted to stand up for, um, and they either escaped or after years of being in prison or torture, they got out somehow, and then they walked on foot across the highest mountains on earth to find some measure of freedom. Um, and came to train and live together in this monastery, but they're still not really free. They're not allowed to go back to their homes and their land. Um, and they've suffered enormously. And what's kept them alive through all of this, through prison and torture and the highest mountains and not being able to go home, is their prayers and their song. And they'd like to sing their song to you now. And the monks went, oh. <laughs> you know, and then the Tibetan, you know, when they were finished, all these symbols and so forth, then the, then the San Quentin Gospel Choir sang magnificently, and then they all just loved each other and loved each other. <laughs> of course, they're brothers. So there's a quality of integrity, no matter the circumstance you find yourself in, that is the nobility of being that is your own Buddha nature. And it comes out of a connectedness with all things and knowing that we have our place in this universe, a, a rightness with all things. Um, and there is a kind of beauty to it. I have one more story I want to read to you tonight um, that illustrates it. And I, I think about it because I think of some years ago I had a a friend from Thailand um, named Ajahn Sulak, who's a, he's kind of one of the Gandhi figures of Thailand, and he's one of the people that helped the monks to ordain the, the big old trees in the forest with monks' robes. Um, 
so that they wouldn't cut down whole areas of the little that remained of the rainforest there. He was somebody, he was always getting in and out of jail and trouble, you know, which made him quite a good guy in my eyes. Um, um, he was trying to get, get support from people in the U.S. for transformation, you know, in that culture because um, as cultures modernize, as Thailand and various other countries modernize, you all know it's some of the worst of corporate um, misbehavior and some of the worst of um, capitalism in its kind of rawest greed um, takes over until people understand that it has to be balanced with some other sets of values. So this is a story that I think of when I think of Sulak, of somebody who just has a kind of purity. Um, Abbot Anastasius, this is from the Christian Desert Fathers, had a book written on very fine parchment that was worth 18 large gold coins and had in it both the Old and New Testaments in full. And once a certain young brother came to visit him and seeing this valuable book, made off with it. So that day when the abbot went to read his book and found it was gone, he realized the brother had taken it. But he didn't send after him to inquire for fear that the brother might lie and add perjury to the theft. Well, the brother went down to Alexandria in order to sell the book, and the price he asked was 16 gold coins. And the buyer said, give me the book and I'll find out whether it is worth this much. And with that, the buyer took the book to the holy abbot Anastasius and said, Father, take a look at this, please, and tell me whether you think I ought to buy it for 16 gold coins. Is it worth that much? And the abbot held it for a time and said, yes, it is a very fine book, worth, certainly worth that much. So the buyer went back to the brother and said, here is your money. I showed the book to abbot Anastasius. And he said, it's a very fine book and worth at least that much. But the brother asked, was that all he said? Did he make no other remarks? No, said the buyer. He didn't say another word. Well, said the brother, I have changed my mind. I don't want to sell the book afterward. And he hastened back to the abbot in the monastery and begged him with tears to take back his book. But the abbot wouldn't accept it, saying, go in peace, brother. I make a gift of it to you. And the brother said, but if you do not take it back, I shall never have any peace, and I would like to stay and learn from you. And he dwelled with the abbot for many years thereafter, and himself became a teacher. And you know, lived happily ever after. <laughs> there is a kind of inexhaustible beauty or purity that we carry within us and that we know um, that can come forth from us. And it's based on our wisdom and our love and the deep integrity that we're born with. And what's important when you hear these, and I love to talk about this highest level of virtue, is that it's not an ideal. You know, people use spiritual life to judge themselves so often and so easily. It's not about judging yourself. It's more like a spiral. Sometimes all we can do is not squash that sucker, you know? I mean, not harm is like, the, that's already a big step, and you should bow to it and celebrate it. That's fantastic. And other times, 
the virtue and integrity in you comes as if you were the queen or the king of the realm. And they're all a part of us. And you can reflect on your life and where it is and when it is that your integrity and your virtue has shined. And how it feels. Those times. I never look at the masses as my responsibility, says Mother Teresa. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time. Just one, one. So you begin, I begin. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean. But if I didn't put that drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you. Same thing in your family and your community where you live. You just begin one, one, one. You know, Mother Teresa went to San Quentin too some years ago. And one of the things that she did is um, when she met with the guys there, whatever group met with her, um, before she left she said, I have to ask something of you. I want you to pray for me. I need your support. And just turn the entire situation around. That everybody has something to offer. Every single person does and can. And that which we have to offer comes from this deep knowing of what is beautiful in spirit, what is beautiful in our connection to this world, and in some way what is sacred. So we meditate, not so much to have some particular state, although different things will come, but to quiet the mind, open the heart, and listen to our place in this turning seasons and the mystery. Now the seasons are really turning, you can feel it, can't you? The light is changing and the air is different. And to feel our way through this mystery of turning seasons with integrity and, and beauty and presence that is your own Buddha nature. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.